Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. I feel like so many other black people feel. I feel vulnerable. I feel susceptible. I feel more in danger with every killing, you know, than I've ever felt. I mean, I really feel it. You know, many people have to have what we now know as the conversation with their children in order to make sure they come home. So it's central to our experiences in this country. That very phenomenon of uh, needing it to be as grotesque as possible, as violent as possible to care about Black life is something I think I'm aware of and understand. But it started with police violence in the sense of catching former slaves, the policing of Black bodies. So there's been this ongoing infatuation with Black death. We have to find a new way in which to find justice for Black people who are killed. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. Welcome to the show. And a special welcome to everybody in the Lexington, Kentucky area, which is joining us for the first time this week. Glad to have you all in the community. This week, we are processing a crushingly familiar story in Memphis, Tennessee. Officers from a special anti-crime unit of the Memphis Police Department stopped 29-year-old Tyree Nichols on January 7th. It's still unclear on what grounds he was stopped in the first place. The officers threw him to the ground and may have even tased him as he asked why he was being stopped. And when he broke free and ran, a group of officers chased him down and brutally beat him for several minutes. He died in the hospital three days later. The police department released a graphic video of the beating on Friday, setting off a fresh round of national news and protests over the state-sanctioned killing of yet another Black American. And you know... In my 25 years of journalism, I have no idea how many times I've had cause to repeat almost everything I just said. It is a crushingly familiar story. And still, we need to talk about a specific human life lost and a specific community confronting the aftermath. So to help us process this story, I'm joined by Karanja Ajanaku. He's the executive editor of the new Tri-State Defender, a news organization serving the Black community in Memphis. He also spent many years covering both City Hall and Black life in general in the city for the commercial appeal. And Karanja, thanks so much for making time. I know you got a lot going on there. Kai, it's my pleasure. So to be fair, there are a couple of key differences in the details of this particular case. One thing that's different in the public conversation, at least, about it is the fact that all five police officers involved in the beating of Tyree Nichols are Black. Many have had much to say about this fact, but for you, how does the race of the officers matter or not in this case? 
Well, I think I'll just go to what Ben Crump said at one of the press conferences that they have found in dealing with these excessive force cases that it is not the race and ethnicity of the officer as much as it is the race and ethnicity of the victims. Yeah, Ben Crump, the who is now the attorney for the family, um, for the Nichols family, and of course Wolves, whose name will be known to many as uh, as someone who has been attorney in many of these cases uh, around the country. I think it's also important to note, though, that while five officers have been charged and 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 uh, fired and charged, when you see the video, I'm sure you have, there are a lot more officers there. They're not all African-American. And one of the things that certainly the, the street level protesters are saying is, well, hey, well, what about the other officers? Or what particularly uh, about the European-American officer that, that you see there? And then we recently found that there are two sheriff's deputies and we don't know what the ethnicity of those are. That there are more people involved in this moment. Than- yes, and they've said there would be ongoing investigations. But, whoa, when you saw it and you could actually see how many more there were, it's like uh, you can understand why there's such an energy uh, from people to say, hey, we want to know the names of everybody and uh, we want action and uh, we want it now. Well, I mean, another important distinction for this case is what has happened since Tyree Nichols died, at least uh, relative to national conversation about this. Um, The officers have been fired and charged with crimes, those five at least, Um, And there is an investigation into why he doesn't appear to have received appropriate medical attention after the beating. Uh, So the response, at least as far as it has gone from the city in terms of holding officers accountable, has been more swift than in previous cases around the country when we've had this conversation. And so I guess my question for you was, is that unexpected in Memphis to you that it would be that as much as happened has happened or is that? What do you make of of what has happened so far and the speed with which it's happened? Sure. I think the first thing is to note that um, Mr. Crump again said that the way that it has proceeded relative to the swiftness within 20 days is a blueprint for America, right? That he's not seen anything like that in any of these other cases. So then why is that? How did that How did that come to be? Well, in part, you like to think that you would have learned something over time. But I think particularly here, we have a new district attorney uh, just came into office uh, a few months ago. And there was, um, you know, on the campaign trail, he uh, promised that he would um, move swiftly relative to these types of cases. The previous district attorney was more on the quote conservative side. Mm -hmm. And so there was an expectation certainly on the part of the African-American community, that they would see different, a different type of action from, uh, from the DA's office. And, and then I think, think, too, there was just the, um, just the severity of it. You know, it was just the, it was the, the, having the video there made a difference. This is not the first time that an unarmed African-American man has been um, killed in Memphis in an encounter with the police in 2015, I believe it was, Darius Stewart uh, was stopped. He was, I think, a passenger in a car, uh, and there was an encounter, and he was he was killed. There were protests, and so, you know, there was, and nothing happened in terms of, um, in, to the officer. I think the, uh, the officer actually took uh, some type of um, pension. Uh, I think he gets like $2,300 a month, plus 70% of his health benefits for the rest of his life. You know, and so um, and so that all was there. But again, with this new uh, district attorney coming in and um, so much of the African-American community 
backed him. There was an expectation that something um, different was going to happen. And I think, too, that just the, the we had a police chief, a new, relatively new uh, police chief, uh, Chief Sarahlyn Davis. She's African-American. So I think you put those two factors together, there was some expectation that there would be uh, something different. But 20 days within within the, the incident, I think, was um, a surprise for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And I, I hear you saying that people, protesters on the street are asking for what about everybody else involved, but is there a sense, um, do you get a sense from the community that what has happened thus far, people are like, okay, this is, I, this, I, applause to the, to, to these new leaders for doing it right? Or how, how is, how have they been received? How have these, these, these no, well, different elements in the community, you know, see it differently. There are some who are saying, yes, um, yeah, we do applaud that. There are certainly different uh, other people saying, well, no, yeah, we see what you've done there, but there is a lack of transparency. Why didn't we know about these officers earlier? You know, and so um, it depends on who you're, who you're talking to. Right, right. Uh, you mentioned the video. One of the very familiar parts of this case is the video and its role as a catalyst for public attention to the case. Um we have talked on this show in previous cases um, about the kind of weird role these videos now play in American culture that, you know, on the one hand, they, you know, ha- are, are this remarkable tool for establishing the truth, for for bearing witness, um, uh, as you pointed out, that no doubt um, was part of the energy of um, of getting uh, getting what accountability we've gotten so far in this case. On the other hand, I actually, I have not watched the video. I quit watching them a very long time ago. Um, unfortunately, mm-hmm. I can refer to them as them. Um, yeah. uh, and and that's regardless of the fact that it's really actually my job to watch them. I just won't do it. And um, and I'm disturbed by the way they live in, in our media. And I just... That's me, and I I genuinely struggle with uh with with what to think and feel about them. And I guess I just wonder about in this particular case, as someone who's thought so much about Memphis and Black Memphis in general, what how do you feel about this video and its role? Just help me think that through. Well, two things: you have the body cam footage, and then you have the sky cop footage. I think if you did not have the sky cop footage, we might be in a little different situation. The, the body cam shows some things. But that sky cop shows a whole nother level. I mean, it's it, there's just no uh, mistaking on what happened there. This there is the surveillance not, video. This yeah. is a, a police surveillance camera that's mounted on a pole in some, yeah, in some parts of the city. It was actually put in place by the, by the county commission because there was, you know, concern, a surge in the area. And as the county, one of the attorneys for the family, who was a former county commissioner, was saying that, well, we put it up there to catch crime, and now we're catching the police doing uh, doing the crime. Mm. There was not that uh, type of um, footage available, as I said, when in 2015, when Darius Stewart uh, was, was um, killed um, by the police, and so that makes a difference. I understand what you're saying about not seeing it. I really do. I mean, we, we're a small staff here, but one of the the reporter, the main reporter that I had, um, she couldn't watch it. Mm. She just, she just asked me, please don't, don't uh, make me cover that, you know. And so, yeah, I understand it. And so I, you know, I jumped in to do that. So p- people are going through all sorts of things like that, trying to process it, you know. So, but you, somebody's got to watch it, mm. you know. You, you you've got to, you've got to watch it, and and then 
react and respond appropriately. I mean, that's not so much in terms of how people react out in the street, stuff like that. I mean, getting something done, you know, that that's the thing. We, we don't want to keep being where we are, you know. And so if 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 the footage then is going to allow us to get to policy change, you know, serious systemic change, then that's what we got to do. So you, you told her, don't worry about it. You don't have to watch it. I'll take no, over. No, I, I, I had to. No, because I'm not into. Hey, no, uh-uh. it was, I understand it. You know, so that's my job, you know, to fill in the gap. How did how did you take it in when you watched it? I have children, you know. Um, I could hear myself just like that. You know, it's and I mean they're just holding the guy, and this guy just reaches back like a wrestling thing, just over and over again. You can feel the breath come out of you, you know. But um, in my case, my job is to watch it. You know, because I've got to be able to tell um, my readers what I saw and to put them in a uh, position to be able to process it and to um, take whatever next steps that make sense for them uh, in terms of getting where we need to, uh, to, to get. I'm talking with Karanja Adenaku, executive editor of the new Tri-State Defender, a news organization serving the Memphis area black community. We can also take your questions for Karanja about Memphis, about this awful story. Stay with us. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex of bugs. <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, this is Kusha. I'm a producer. I want to remind you that if you have questions or comments about what you're listening to, we at the show would love to hear from you. Here's how. First, you can email us. The address is notes at wnyc.org. Second, you can send us a voice message. Just go to notesfromamerica.org and click on the green button a little bit down the page that says start recording. Finally, you can message us on Twitter and Instagram. The handle is at Notes with Kai. However you want to reach us, we'd love to hear from you and maybe use your message on the show. All right. Thanks. Talk to you soon. Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright, and I'm talking with Karanja Ajanaku, editor of the new Tri-State Defender, which is a news organization serving the Black community in Memphis. We are talking about the awful story of the police killing of Tyree Nichols. We can also take your questions for Karanja about Memphis, about this awful story, uh, whatever you've got on your mind. Uh, and Karanja, you've been covering the story from its beginning. Um, it did not start this weekend when the video became public. Um, so 
Can you introduce us to Tyree Nichols? I mean, what have you reported about his life? Well, I think the, the best version of who he is comes from his mother. And uh, boy, the heart goes out mm-hmm. for her uh, being in front of the national media so many times and having to, uh, to talk um, about her son under these circumstances. But he was 29 years old. Uh, he worked at the uh, FedEx hub with his uh, stepfather, whom they just said is his father. They were that they were that close. He loved um, photography. He particularly loved uh, skateboarding, and he loved uh, taking photos of sunsets. He was off that weekend, um, and his mom said that uh, her name is Robin Wells. That he was coming back from one of those um, sunset. Um, adventures uh, when this happened. She said that, you know, every mother says that, hey, they've got a good son, you know, but as she said that he was, uh, he wasn't perfect, but as she said, damn near. Uh, and she said that he had a tattoo of, uh, of her on his arm. And she said, you know, sons don't not normally do that, you know, <laughs> uh, but she said that, um, that she that he loved her um, dearly. That he was just the kind of guy that um, you can't seem to find anybody that said this guy was um, a difficult uh, personality. In fact, just the opposite. He would meet often with um, some friends up at um, Starbucks. And he was a very sociable uh, kind of a gentleman. It, it's worth noting that he had Crohn's disease, and amongst the things that that does it, it affects your weight and so they said that he weighed really um about or just a little less than 150 pounds as they said quote soaking wet which made this uh brutal situation just that much more you know that five people are beating up this uh, this this gentleman who by all accounts is uh the kind of personality that you would want your 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 son uh, to have and to, to demonstrate. I mean, whoever you are, five on one is <laughs> just basic stuff. I mean, be it, before we get to any of the rest of it, how are five people beating up one person? It's not surprising the outcome. Uh, what what I said earlier that it's not clear yet why he was stopped in the first place. I mean, what is being what has the Memphis Police Department said or the city said about why they were bothering him in the first place? Well, you have to go back to this now disbanded Scorpion unit, uh, and it's um, and one of these special units that the actually the new police chief uh, put in place about five months after she, uh, she came in. I think she came in in, in 2021, and there had been concern, and there is concern about uh, a surge uh, in crime, and so this uh, unit was put in place uh, to do that. She says that there is evidence that it had um, been doing its job. It's gotten bad actors off the street. It's got a lot of guns. But what we know now, uh, at least certainly from listening to Mr. Crump and those folks, is that there have been uh, a number of people in the community that are saying that this basically was a rogue unit built on essentially domestic terrorism in terms of how it was going uh, about its business. And I think uh, Attorney Antonio Ramanucci was saying that you can call it whatever you want, Scorpion unit or whatever, but he said it's it's one of these saturation units, and they tend to be oppression units, um, and they they focus in on uh, so-called black and brown children, and 
they just want to miss. And it's, it's interesting, too, that our police chief here at one point served in Atlanta, and she was over um, a similar type of operation. I think mm-hmm. they called it Red Dog there. Uh, and it also uh, eventually ran into some criticism about how the officers were really going about the same type of aggressive behavior here. And I think it was eventually uh, disbanded. You just to get a little more backstory about this this unit, because um, I'd like to understand how it came to be in the first place. Now, you this is again, it's the, the unit is called Scorpion. We have heard time and time again in cities across the country and throughout history that these are the units where there's so often excessive force comes out of it. Um, it's worth noting that you interviewed the police chief. She told you they were never going to disband it. And then uh, a couple of days later, they did, in fact, disband it. So it is now yeah, been I disbanded. Say, I wouldn't say that she said never, but okay. it was obvious at that point when our reporter talked to her that she didn't think that was the way to go. Right. She thought it was too much of a, of a reaction to uh, a bad actors. But there was such a um, pushback in the community on multiple levels that she changed course in 24 hours. Yeah. She met with the members of the of the Scorpion unit and they agreed uh, that they weren't going to go forward. I think Mr. Romanucci really put it into the context is that given what has happened and our ability to see it, how is it that anybody in the community could ever trust uh, that, right. that unit? It was basically... Uh, defunct, you know, and so uh, I think so many people got to her, and of course 24 hours she changed her mind. And it it is now gone. And so now it's gone, but how it got there in the first instance, um, this, I, it was presumably in response to an outcry from the community about crime, right? I mean, is that it, can you give the backstory of how you think this this unit came to be in the first place? Because it's fairly new. Sure, She, she set it up. I mean, there's no doubt about that. And she said she was hearing so often from people who um, they couldn't sleep at night from the from the just the, the amount of gunfire uh, and things that are going on. There are a lot of guns in Memphis. I mean, there are a lot of guns in Memphis and yeah. there are a lot of people dying. I think we had over 300 people murdered last year. And quote, that's an that's an improvement. You so know? it's so, not a crime panic we're talking about. There's real there is a real crime problem that people in the community are concerned about. Yes. Yes, yes. But the d- issue is, you know, how are you going to go about it? And I don't care what you put in place. But the thing is, that you have to, you have to be accountable. Okay. And so when you go back and then you look at these officers, they aren't really seriously veteran officers. Right. And so then the question becomes, how are these officers picked? By whom? How are they trained? And what is the accountability so far? At least I don't know. What is the what is the record here? I mean, how many complaints have they been from her side? I hear her saying that every um, complaint that would have been addressed. But, you know, I'm hearing from Mr. Crump and others that, you know, people called up. They called internal affairs, uh, particularly one guy that, that they talked about who said that they these officers and we don't know specifically if this these officers, because there's four teams of them, you know, put a gun to his head. He called internal affairs twice and he got no feedback, you know. And so there has to be accountability for that. And even even as I said the other day to an, another organization I was talking to, that we in the media have to take a look at ourselves, too. Mm. And in terms of the role 
that we play in making sure that there is accountability. You know, a lot of us, especially African-American newspapers, legacy papers, you know, our, our resources are really, really meager. Like We don't cover crime here as, a, as an everyday beat. There's more than one reason for that. But what we don't, you know, but when you, I'm thinking about it now, I'm thinking, you know what? I might have to redeploy what I do have, just not so much to cover cover crime, but to cover accountability relative to the enforcement of crime. You know, the the, the law enforcement relative to crime. Yeah. Is what I mean. yeah. Yeah. You. Uh came to Memphis as a young reporter uh, just out of school in 1977 and, you know, adopted the city uh, and uh, as your own, it's got this rich black history, um, uh, both, you know, good, celebratory and challenging. Uh, How much did you know about the city at the time? And, and what did you, would you, would you know about it then? And would you come to learn about it that, that made you love it? So I knew two things about Memphis. I knew that, um, Elvis Presley was from here. I used to watch all Elvis Presley's movies, and I knew that Dr. King died here. Um, I got here because I went to the University of Missouri uh, Journalism School. I was in the bathroom one day. A professor came in and said, someone didn't show up for an interview at the Commercial Appeal. Would you go in and so that the uh, school won't look bad? I said, well, what is that? commercial appeal because there's no name, no city to it. So he said, it's Memphis. And okay, fine. So I went in, I would did the interview for 15 minutes. I think for 13, he didn't ask me anything about journalism. He asked me about roots. Okay. And so the the mini series roots. And at that time I was taking two courses because I was finished with everything else. One was the private eye in America and the other was roots, you know, so I could talk about it this way, that way, the other. And so Catherine, he said, well, we don't have a job. I said, well, that's fine. You know, I'm just in here for the experience. And so the school won't look bad. Two weeks later, he called me back and said, Hey, we got a job. I said, nah, man, I I got an interview with some others. We went through a long process and, uh, that same guy in the bathroom convinced me that this would be a good place uh, to you know, start your career. And so I came to Memphis and uh, you know, just tried to make my way through that uh, covering. Uh, eventually, they started integrating the downtown beats. When I got there, there were only uh, two other African-American reporters at the daily newspaper. And I was the third. And after um, a couple of years there, they decided they were going to start integrating the downtown beats. One of my friends was sent to the police department, the other to the federal beat, and I went to City Hall. Making you one of the first black people to cover City Hall in Memphis. Yes. yes, And so um, I went through that. And then we were called in one day, and uh, the editor who's now passed decided he was getting some heat from a lot of heat from the community about uh, the lack of coverage relative to the African American community. And I mean, all the African-American reporters, you know, we had a few more at that time. We got together all the things we want to talk about between about this. Obviously, he had something in mind, right? He wanted a uh, a specific reporter, you know, like a, quote, minority affairs reporter, mm-hmm. you know, to sit on the community. I, as I recall, I'm the only one in the room who argued against it, you know, because I said, look, you know, now that we've gotten to the point where we recognize we need to cover the community as, as a whole, we need to get into it. We don't need to... But it was obvious that he wanted to do one person. I went back. I thought about it. Went back in. I told him I want that job. So he says, well, why would you want a job that you just argued for? And I said, because, one, uh, if you can make something out of it, I know I, I've got the skills to do that. And if it needs to die, I know i got the courage to tell you that, too. Mm-hmm. You know. And so for about two and a half years, I just um, covered from the top to the bottom. And at that time, Ben Hooks was the head of the uh, national NAACP. He was from Memphis. Yeah. I followed him and the different people around and just uh, 
I got affected, really, to be honest with you. I started to learn not so much about the community, but I started to learn about myself relative to the community and then ran into a group here in Memphis that just really introduced me to another way of looking at slavery and how to look at myself relative to that. And I went through a process of self-discovery, made the transition from uh, Leroy Williams Jr. to Karanja Janaku, and um, here I am. And I asked you to recount all that because, I mean, you have deep, deep knowledge of the city and the Black community's relationship to the city and place in it. And I just wonder if you could characterize, you know, when a story like this happens, um, what is the community's relationship to power in civic life there? You know, um, what in terms of um, feeling like it's a majority Black city, um, but does it feel like a majority Black city that has control over over government, over power in, 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 in the city? Well, it is a majority African-American community. There's no doubt about that. But it's a very, very poor community, right? right? And so we have African-Americans throughout government. Both of, We have a city and a county mayor system. Both of the, uh, both of the mayors are African-American. Their sheriff is African-American. Most of the people on the city council are African-American and on the school board. But it's a very poor city. And from an economic standpoint, we are nowhere near we where we need to be. And I know you know that if you don't have your economic base together, your politics is really just sort of window dressing uh, in a way. And so that really, to me, in, in addition to what we've got to do from a, a social justice and criminal justice standpoint, we've got to get some economic justice going on, um, both in terms of any impediments from, from the outside, but also there has to be a mind shift inside about how we're going to go about marshalling our, our resources. It's one thing to say that we've got X number of people, but if you don't have a structure in place to be able to do something with those numbers, it doesn't work. You know, it's like it, it just doesn't work. And, and so historically, that's been the challenge here. How are we going to take these numbers and marshal them in some kind of way uh, that uh, we can leverage, you know, an economic opportunity. We've got this big Ford operation coming in here with electric uh, vehicles, and there's the promise of, uh, in West Tennessee, there's the promise of so many jobs and opportunities here, but we have to be structured, you know, to be able to uh, be able to handle that. And that's, that's really the challenge here. Is money, indeed. Uh, Neva on YouTube asks, do the officers live in Memphis, um, you know, and how people in the community are reacting to them as individuals? I hear her getting at, like, you know, it's, we talk about all these system things, but these are five human beings who did this um, to another human sure. being. Uh, and I just wonder about that. Yes, they're all from either Memphis or the Memphis area. I haven't heard, heard anything to say they're not from you know, from outside of Memphis. In fact, I mean, I think right now you, you should, you know, that's that's where you, uh, our officers come from. And so we don't really know um, as much about them as we need to now. And that's really the next frontier, yeah. you know, from, from my standpoint, just right. digging into who these people are. And as I said earlier, um, where did they come from? I mean, who, how did they get hired and what was involved uh, in that? Um, and then if you really, if you could really, really get into it, you know, and really dig into their background, it's like, what in the world was it in their background that could cause one human being to work in concert with other human beings to treat another human being the way that they did on video? You know, that's that's knowing the that they were being videoed. 
Yeah, and so when you listen to the video, I mean, the videos and the footage, you can hear that them almost, and I don't even say almost, it sounds like they're concocting a story. They knew that it was on. I mean, at one point, one of them says, yeah, did you see him go for my gun? Well, no, I don't see anything. I see you talking about that, you know, that that kind of thing. So, yeah, yeah who are these people? Um, but as I said, I told somebody the other day, as bad as these actors are, and they, they got to, you know, they got to own up. Uh, they got to own up for that. But they have families, too, yeah. you know, and they have children. And, and so we, we got to find a way to, I mean, how do I say it, you know, be holistic in the healing process, you know, relative, relative to that. And yeah. that ain't no easy thing. Yeah. Karanja Ajanaku is editor of the new Tri-State Defender in Memphis. Check them out to follow this ongoing story. And thank you so much for spending this time with us. My pleasure, Kai. Thank you. Notes from America is a production of WNYC Studios. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts or on both Instagram and Twitter at Notes with Kai. And hey, if you heard anything you want to chime in about this week, you can leave us a voice message right on our website. Just go to notesfromamerica.org and look for the record button. Our live engineer was Matthew Mirando, mixing and music by Jared Paul. Our team also includes Karen Frillman, Regina Dehir, Vanessa Handy, Rahima Nasa, Kusha Navadar, and Lindsay Foster-Thomas. And I am Kai Ray. Thanks for spending time with us. <laughs>